And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to the Success Story Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Clary. On this podcast, I have candid interviews with execs, celebrities, politicians, and other notable figures, all who have achieved success through both wins and losses, to learn more about their life, their ideas, and their insights. I sit down with leaders and mentors and unpack their story to help pass those lessons on to others through both experiences and tactical strategy for business professionals, entrepreneurs, and everyone in between. Without further ado, another episode of the Success Story Podcast. Today, I have uh, Steve Hoffman, better ref- better known or referred to as Captain Hoff, and I'm going to figure out why in a few minutes, um, as he's called in Silicon Valley. He is the chairman and CEO of Founders Space, one of the world's leading incubators and startup accelerators. He is also an angel investor, limited partner in August Capital, serial entrepreneur, and author of several award-winning books, uh, including Make Elements, Elephants Fly uh, and Surviving a Startup. Um, Hoffman uh, was the founder and chairman of the Producers Guild uh, of the Silicon Valley chapter, board of governors of New Media Council, and founding member of the Academy of Television's Interactive Media Group. Um, in Silicon Valley, Hoffman founded venture-backed startups in the areas of games and entertainment and worked as mobile studio head for Infospace. Uh, which uh, created games such uh, mobile hit games such as Tetris, Wheel of Fortune, and Tomb Raider, Thief, Hitman, Skee Ball, X Files, a lot of names that you probably played around with on your phone. Um, and then after that uh, is where, uh, you know, Steve or Captain Hoff is right now at Founder Space, um, where he's working with a whole bunch of entrepreneurs, helping them accelerate their businesses, helping them, ed- ed- educating them on what it takes to be successful. Um, so he's, uh, he's heavily involved in the startup space. And uh, outside of what he's done as, uh, as an entrepreneur himself and as uh, an angel investor and mentor to startups, uh, he's trained startup founders and corporate executives in the art of innovation and provided consulting to many of the world's largest companies, inclu- including Qualcomm, Huawei, Bosch, Intel, Disney, Warner Brothers, NBC, Gulf Oil, uh, Siemens, and Viacom. So a ton of, uh, a ton of, I don't know, takeaways, ton of accolades, a ton of probably, you know, speaking points as to how you came to who you are today. So um, thank you for sitting down. I appreciate it. It's great to be here with you. No, it's, uh, it's uh, exciting. So I, I love speaking business. I love speaking startups. Um, you know, even the, the, the consulting of some of these like, you know, household brand names, it's also exciting, but I'll, I'll pass it over to you and uh, maybe start off, why Captain Hoff? <laughs> so in Silicon Valley, that's my nickname because I'm the captain 
and CEO of Founderspace. And so Founderspace is a startup accelerator and incubator here in San Francisco. And we help startups not only in Silicon Valley, let me adjust this, not only in Silicon Valley, but all around the world. So we have offices as far away as China. We actually have a lot of offices in China where we work with entrepreneurs. We work heavily with them in South Korea, Australia, Taiwan, across Europe. And our goal is really, we work with hundreds of entrepreneurs every year. And our goal is to help them with their business, to help them with their concept, figuring out if there's a good fit with the market, helping them go to market, and helping them raise venture capital. We also, I'm an investor, so I do a lot of investing in startups, both here in the United States, as well as all over the world. And I'm always looking for great companies. So so this is where you're at right now. So walk us through, um, because this is like a very boilerplate uh, summary that I, I pulled off a website. So walk us through like your life, your origin story, uh, how you came to be Captain Hoff. Ah, how I became to be Captain Hoff. So it all started when I was a wee child. No, when I was small, when I was young, I was very passionate about being creative. So I was always doing projects. So probably like you with this podcast, I was I was out there as a kid. I was shooting movies. I got all my friends together, made over 50 films all the way through high school. I was inventing games. So I always knew I wanted to do something. And but my father, he was an MIT rocket scientist. And he was like, son, you have to study computers. Computers are the future. So I went and got an electrical computer engineering degree. He's not as wrong. Soon as, I, I, uh-oh, as soon as I had that degree, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I actually went to grad school in film at USC. So I studied film and television. And then I graduated with my master's degree with no job. I was like, what do I do? So I was in Hollywood at the time. It was... Uh, I didn't know really have any inside connections or anything. So I literally found out how to reach out to all the top people in Hollywood. And I would contact them. I'd write them letters, right, trying to get their attention. So I sent out 150 of these to the top people in Hollywood when I could get their information. I only got three responses. So the very first response I got was from the producer of Empire Strikes Back. You know, the Star Wars series. So he called me up. He said, I loved your letter. I, you know, I thought it was great. I don't have a job for you, but he just wanted to chat. So we we spent like 45 minutes talking and that was that. The second call I got back was from Disney. So they invited me in to an interview where I met them and I was, you know, I was really, really wanted the job at Disney. And it was going very well. It was with the director of production, so my dream job. And then they asked me, what films do I like? And they're like, do do you watch a lot of Disney films? And I go, yeah, yeah, I I watch some Disney films. But then I started, because I'd gone to film school and I knew all these amazing directors, you know, producing, you know, incredible works. And I started to rattle off all these, you know, high-end directors with their incredible works. And then they go, but none of those are Disney films. <laughs> as, as soon as I did that, the job interview was literally over. Like, 
if I wasn't going to like say what they wanted to hear, so this is maybe a lesson for you, yeah. in a job interview, you can't say what you really believe. you got to say that their product is the greatest. So I learned, basically, I saw that the expression on the, the, the head of the production's face, her, her expression just went. Like shut down when I when none of the directors I listed or none of the films were Disney that I was really passionate about and and it was over I was literally over, so then I had uh, one other person out of all those people I'd spent all this time trying to reach out to brought me in his name was Chuck Freeze he had at the time he had a big office on Hollywood this big building the top floors he had his name on it was Hollywood Boulevard he had his name in huge letters everybody knew it and he had produced over 150 television shows and movies and things like that so he's very well known and he brought me into his office it's this huge imposing office like you'd see you'd uh, you in a Hollywood movie, it's like the type of office you would imagine a Hollywood producer to have, a big shot. This long, long, long office, all his Emmys were on the wall and everything. And then he looks at me and he goes, what do you want? What do you want, Hoffman? And I was like, I want a job. I want a job in Hollywood. I want to be a writer in Hollywood. Can you hire me? And then he just goes on, and I don't know about this. And then uh, I'll see what I can do. And then... I wait, and a week later, I get a job offer. But it's not the job I had in mind after going to graduate school and film school. It was a low, low, low-level job. It was called a script reader. And basically, you're paid by the script, very little money, to read the script as quickly as you can and then summarize it uh, and give it back to them. It's not a job where you can even afford to pay your rent, let alone buy pizza. So it's it's a... a uh, it's, it's something you do when you have no job or nothing else to do. But I took it. It was the only thing I had. There was nothing left. So I took this job. I worked really hard analyzing these scripts, doing the best. There's a bunch of other readers, like a, a dozen other, coming in and out every day, getting scripts, going back. And the head of production that worked under Chuck, she was, uh, you know, she, she was very nice. She'd give me the scripts and stuff. And then a couple weeks later, I was like, I can't do this forever. You know, I want to make stuff. I don't want to just read stuff and, and write a synopsis so they don't have to read it so they can just read my synopsis. So I, I asked to meet with Chuck again and I, I get an appointment. I go back into his office. He's sitting there. He's this huge guy. Um, and it, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Barton Fink. No, you I haven't. Seen that? No. It's a Coen Brothers movie. Okay. It's a great movie. It's about Hollywood. It's about this young writer who comes to Hollywood. Well, the producer in that movie looked just like Chuck. And Tom yeah, I'll, like I'll Google it after. <laughs> He's this big guy, this giant guy, and he kind of like, oh, Hoffman, what are you doing back here? Aren't you happy with your job? And I go, Chuck, I could do more. I can do more than read. I could write for you. I could do that. Oh, Hoffman, you're not even satisfied. Go away. Sends me away. But sure enough, uh, a week and a half later, he gives me an opportunity. So I get to work with his son, who's in the office, who is a disgruntled, uh, disgruntled, uh, he's working for his dad, right? Yeah. So he feels like he's failed, and he's in his like late 30s, and he isn't really producing, he's just working for his dad, and so he's bitter. But he, and everybody in the office is terrified of him. So his name is Butch, and he looks at me like, 
you know, like glares at me. He doesn't smile at anybody. So I'm terrified, you know, my first job. But he gives me this project to actually uh, write a whole uh, uh, what's called a treatment, which is an outline for a miniseries, a TV miniseries about the Wild West. So I, I do all this research. I work really hard. I write it. I give it to him and I'm waiting and eventually calls me back into his office and he goes, this is really good. So, wow, he loved it, you know, and I was happy, you know, I actually got him to smile. And then as soon as I got that confirmation, I made another appointment with Chuck uh, to go back and ask him to do more. So I, I wait, he calls me into his office. He goes, Hoffman, do you ever give up? Are you ever satisfied? <laughs> and I go, yeah, but I can do more than, you know, do an outline for a film. I could write stuff for you. I could be a writer. Hoffman, I don't know about you. Go away. So I go away. I'm I'm at work. I continue working for a couple more weeks. I get called in uh, to the head of development, and I sit down to get my script. Nothing's happening. She looks at me, and she is upset. She is, like, mad. Like, I could see that fire in her eyes. And she goes, you got me fired like and then she stands up and runs out of the room and i was like what the, what's going on here you're, like, you're still young when this is all this is like your first job college. yeah i just yeah. graduated college so i i don't know what's going on i'm sitting in her office then uh the secretary for chuck calls me into his office and i sit down there i'm really flustered i have no idea this is uh crazy and chuck goes Hoffman, you're the new head of development. It's your job. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I so he basically fired her and put me in her job because of so, because the, the script you wrote was was good. Yeah, but she's not a writer. Oh, okay, that was so, the job yeah. I was asking for. I was asking to be, uh, I was asking to be a writer, and she's a development executive. So I got put in her job. I didn't know what she did. Like, I had no idea. So I go sort of terrified, like I don't know what the job is. I, I, it wasn't what I wanted. And I'm back in her office. My office overlooks Hollywood Boulevard. Across the street is the Man Chinese Theater. It's like just like a movie. If you've seen the movie Swimming with Sharks, it's another yeah. great movie. It, it was just like that. Like, and so it's like kind of living out these movies about Hollywood. And then the phone rings, and I don't know what to say or whether to pick it up. So I Eventually, I pick it up and I'm like, hello. And they ask for her, you know, and I go, well, she's not here right now. Can I help you? And it's this agent from ICM. And he's like, can we send over this script? Blah, 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 blah. And I don't know what to say. So I'm saying, sure, send it over. And then I go back to her desk and all the other readers start to come in. And they're like, where, where is Karen? Where is she? I'm like sitting at her desk. And I was like, well, she's not here right now, but I'm kind of doing the job <laughs> but they've been working as a reader some of them for years like five or six years they they know the job much better than i kind of just started a, a couple months ago and so they have to tell me what to do like they have to instruct me like what to do and then it gets worse because i was sort of this i liked high-end movies i told you earlier with disney so they call me in uh, Chuck calls me into his off office with his two sons, and I'm sitting there, and he's like, Hoffman, we have this TV show. We want to cast this actress in it, and it's about this, and that, blah, 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 blah. Who do you think should star in it? 
Well, I have no idea. I don't even watch TV. Like I'm so busy like working and watching these high-end films at film school that I was just like I didn't I haven't watched TV for years. I have no idea who the, the hot actresses are or actors are or any of this stuff that my, the that I'm supposed to know. So I'm panicking. Like he's asking me to say something. I'm like he's going to fire me tomorrow. Like it's I'm over. I'm done. I like this is like he's going to find out I know absolutely nothing about this job. So I Say, you know, Chuck, let me come back with you with a good answer tomorrow. I need to think about this. So I go back to my office. Soon as I get back to my office, I call my brother's best friend. He works in Hollywood. He's a young guy, but he has a photographic memory and he is obsessed with everything Hollywood. And he literally knows every actor, the A actors, the B actors, the C actors, the actors that just had a cameo in one television show 20 years ago. He'll know them. Right. So I call him up and I describe the, the, the story and I go, who would be perfect? And he goes, oh. Well, this person would be your first choice, this <laughs> your second, this actress is your third. Next day, I get called back into Chuck's office. Hoffman, have you thought about it? Who should we put in the role? Well, this would be my first choice. This would be the second. This would be the third. Hoffman, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, every day of this job, I was sure I was going to get found out and I would be fired. But it, gradually, I learned what to do as a development executive. And and with the aid of my friends, I could actually perform the job halfway decently and still do some writing on the side. And I stuck with that job uh, for a year. And then uh, I decided it wasn't for me. It wasn't like I wasn't writing. I wasn't really doing. I was just kind of managing mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the development process. I was like, I got an opportunity to go to Japan and work for a big game company which was, I thought, oh, I can make games. I can design games. They're going to put me in as a designer because they wanted to hire somebody from Hollywood. So I basically uh, took uh, that opportunity and quit the job. And then Chuck was like shocked. He's like, what are we going to do? What? Yeah. Is there another Hoffman we can get? Do you know what I told him? Well, you could hire my brother. He hired <laughs> it's, it's Hollywood. I was like, you could hire my brother. Your brother. What, what is he doing? <laughs> well, you know, he is working in a record store. <laughs> Does he have any experience? Uh, no, he has no experience whatsoever, but he's living in L.A. right now. And he could would certainly like the job. And then he's like, if he's a Hoffman, we're hiring him. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, they hired my brother. That's too and funny. I and I flew off to Japan, and my, my, my brother's really smart. He did a great job. But I flew off to Japan, and uh, then I worked in games for another year, designing games. and That was a Japanese. whole new learning curve, though, Yeah, coming from where you were. Yeah, because that's not... Right. Totally new. Right, so yeah. I had to start over again. And I, it was a whole other story. I won't go into too much detail, but I, I lasted a year, and then I decided after a year, I decided I had all these game ideas that I wanted to make that they weren't ready to produce. So I was like, I'm just going to start my own game company, but I can't do it in Japan. I have to move back to Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. back to San Francisco. So I moved back there. That's when I became a startup founder. My first company was a game company. My first game was called Gazillionaire. So it's all about, it was, it's actually, it's still popular today. So even, this was a long time ago, but it's on Steam now, uh, the game. And oh. it's all about how you become an entrepreneur. 
and all but it's fun it's like you're in outer space and you're trading lava lamps and all these crazy products and growing your business and advertising and that game was a hit we got we closed a big deal for that got put in all the stores got went everywhere when it first went out and then i made a series of games in my own company after that, I started sort of a game combined with television, my two back pieces of background, mm-hmm. the technology, combined them all, did an interactive TV technology company and, and ho- went back to Hollywood, the, did that whole thing. And I just kept going. I did three venture funded startups. And then after that, all my friends started to come to me and like, Steve, Captain, how do you raise money? How did you start these companies? What did you do? And then I would just tell them like for fun. And they all had similar questions. They were all asking the same questions. So I basically, uh, what I did was I would uh, uh, I would start to write down the answers I gave them and post them on my blog. And I named that blog Founder Space. And Founder Space is what became our incubator and accelerator. Because after doing the blog, people I didn't know started to ask me questions about Mm -hmm. their startups and I was like well come to a meeting and we would do these founder space roundtables and then they're like don't you want to start an incubator accelerator so in 2011 we started our own kind of incubator and accelerator uh, and basically it started here but I started to meet people from all over the world right they were like coming at me and they were saying well could you you know we want to bring Silicon Valley to Budapest or we want to bring Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. to Hangzhou wherever uh, you know sydney australia can you help us and i was like sure so we started to take our programs overseas i started to travel a lot last year i traveled like 70 percent of my time this year i'm not traveling i'm stuck at home i think everybody's but, stuck at home right now but <laughs> but I traveled all over the world. We basically ran courses in other people's incubators, accelerators. We worked with different governments all over the world. We worked with, we set up our own incubators and accelerators, and it just kept going. And we did investments and all this stuff. It's been a crazy wild ride. But in my life, doing all of these things, uh, you know, either you're an entrepreneur or you're not. So in your life, if you're an you're just trying many, many, many crazy things. Like, how? What can you do in your life? You know, what will happen? And originally, when I went to abroad, like I got invited to China first of all, they invited me there. I thought, oh, this is just a a, a, a free trip, right? They paid yeah. my flight and everything. I'm never going to do business in China. Like, it's too different. I don't know anything about it. But you know, I saw an opportunity. And this was several years back when they were just because it was behind the U.S. They're just starting to grow their startup ecosystem. Now China is huge. I mean, they have as many unicorns as we do. Like it's a a huge uh, uh, startup area. But at that time, it wasn't. And I we became like I became super famous in China, more much better known than I am here in my own country, the United States. Like everybody in, in kind of business knows me. And and because I was just there at the right time, we mm-hmm. set up our incubator. I wrote a book, my first book, Make Elephants Fly, was like a bestseller there. Uh, we did all these deals. And, and so, you know, my advice to anybody out there is don't be rigid. Don't be fixed on what you think should happen. Because if mm-hmm. you think something should happen and you keep – and it's not happening, this is where I see most entrepreneurs fail. They're like, I, this is my vision. And I think it should be this way, but the world isn't doesn't care, right? The world doesn't care what you think in your head. The world only cares about whatever it cares about. So, you know, I always say the best entrepreneurs in the world, they don't, uh, 
you know, we like we have this vision, and I'm a romantic, so I'm a passionate guy. If you can't already tell, uh, but I'm all I believe that like you should always follow your vision. But I learned that the times when I stuck with my vision, whatever it was, were the times, and I didn't, and I kind of put on blinders. I'm like, I'm doing this no matter what people say. They can say it sucks. Nobody can tune in. I'm still going to do it. Those usually weren't successful, but the times where I looked is an interaction between what I did and the feedback I got from customers, from the marketplace, from things like that, and I kind of let it take me in a direction where there was a real need. Those are when it took off in a big way. So my, my, my kind of learning on how to be successful is one of the fundamental lessons is to be successful, an entrepreneur's job isn't necessarily to create something entirely new that nobody's ever thought of. An entrepreneur's job is to discover unmet demand, to discover something unique, create some sort of value. It can be an entertainment. It doesn't matter. It can be a product. These, all these businesses are the same. It doesn't matter if it's, whether it's Hollywood or the entertainment industry or, you know, what we're, what, you know, the tech industry yeah. or any industry. You're, if you're going to innovate, you need to – innovation – is about matching, is about being an explorer, going where other people haven't gone, trying something out, and then gauging demand. And you, if you can strike a, a really like a gusher, like when you hit an oil well, yeah. it's untapped demand that nobody has gotten, and it's just pushing you, then you know you have it. That's when you put all your energy into it. Before that happens, don't commit in your mind. Because I see most startups fail because they stick with the same idea too long rather than that they try too many things. Mm -hmm. I have a, I have a, so I, I want to keep going and, and speak about what you're working with now with Founderspace and like maybe some of the uh, startups that you've worked with. But one thing that I noticed, and I, I kind of want to dive into that because you pivoted a lot in your career. So you went from film, you went to uh, game development to building out your own game. And I think what I wanted to understand was when you came back from China, you you said you started this this game Gazillionaire and it, and it was sold and now it's on Steam and it's worked out well. But one thing that I didn't hear from you that was interesting, I didn't hear a lot about like any failures that you you oh. had over your career. And that's one thing that I always notice like entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, speak about. So I was curious about things that may not have gone as well as as you thought, or or were you just very fortunate with like the ventures that you did? No, I failed a lot of times. And because I tried a lot of things, I uh, failure, first of all, for every entrepreneur I know, is literally part of the process. If you're going to go off exploring and try something crazy, you're going to fail most of the time because it's something new. It's something nobody's tried. And you won't know if it'll work until you try it. So, you know, my first uh, couple games, my first few games were a success. I got like super lucky. Mm -hmm. But then I went and I told you I did that interactive TV company, you yeah. know, where we were actually the first company to combine uh, laptops. Like on your laptop, you could play along with a live TV show. So at first, we were a huge success. Like we literally, uh, it's a whole nother story. I don't won't go into it, but it's a crazy story about, you know, we were like totally out of money. But we at the last minute, we closed a deal with MTV, Viacom. <laughs> And uh, we closed a deal, and we had to pivot many times. So when I first started that company, it was called Spider Dance. So the first product we launched, we were like, well, there's 
first it was going to be online games. We were like, we were at the very beginning of online games. There really was one on, successful online game at the time, and it was called EverQuest. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just like a nascent industry, wide open. And we were like, well, you know, doing games is a tough business, right? It's a hit-driven business. You never, you can put all, you can put like two years of time into a game, and it just flops. Like, you know, why did it flop? Well, you know, it's just like movies. Some are, are hits and some aren't. So we're like, I knew this business. I knew the game business. I'd made three of my games that were successful. And I, we're like, we're, uh, we're, I was like, let's don't build games. Let's build an online platform because platforms, you don't have to have a hit. We can just get a lot of other people on our platform. So we started out building an online gaming platform. And I basically ran out to all these other people and tried to get them, uh, game developers, to sign up on our platform. Well, it was so early in the days of online that they didn't they didn't trust us there mm-hmm. were no online gaming platforms and gamers tend to be fiercely independent game developers and they all wanted to build it themselves and those that i could get to join wanted us to do all the specific customization work for their game mm-hmm. and the technology was still immature we were a small team like you know just four people we didn't have the resources to do that so immediately we had to pivot the first time. So the first thing we failed, we failed fast. They, they didn't have this uh, lean startup methodology back then. It was pre, pre to that, but we kind of intuitively knew they, they, we can't deliver on this product. So then we tried to build our own online game and we got into casual gaming and we were the kind of the first ones to build uh, another kind of really pushing the limits. We were the first ones to try a platform for online gaming. And then we were the first ones to try a plugin that you could plug into any website. And we called it Jabber Chat. And you could actually play games as you chatted. Like you could chat online, and you could, which was really getting popular, just getting popular. And you could play games as you chatted. And uh, they were fun word games and other games. So it would make chatting a whole new experience. Well, this one, the best interactive game of South by Southwest, you know, the big conference, yeah. we, all hundreds of sites embedded our code into their site. We were the first and they were like, this is so cool. And then we were like, OK, and then we put in ad revenue. Right. Yeah. Now, this was early days of advertising on the Internet. And we were like, OK, we've got all these sites. We've got all this recognition. We're going to make money. You know how much money we made our first month with hundreds of sites using our product? How much? Not enough to buy a pizza. <laughs> we made, literally, the ad market wasn't there yet. We were. It was the early days of the dot com, like you know, thing. And there were no they these services. There was no Google AdWords. There was none of this. It was just some other service that some random people and they really had no advertisers that would pay any decent money. So we're like, we can't live off of this. Like we've already tried one pivot. We've tried another. We're running out of money. You know, this is our own money we're spending. We need something that'll work. And that's when we heard that MTV was going to do an interactive TV show. And we're like, oh my God, how do you get a deal like this done? You know, with MTV, we didn't know anybody at MTV. So we kept calling them though. We got a phone number of like that vice president of MTV in charge of interactive. And we kept calling him and leaving messages on his voicemail. He never called back. And then one of my uh, partners, she went, got invited to CES to give a talk. So she goes up on stage on CES and she starts talking about, we hadn't built anything yet. We were just beginning. You know, we had just pivoted. Yeah. She starts talking about our dream to build an interactive TV platform. 
And after she's done with the talk, this guy comes running up and he's like, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. You have exactly what we need. And she, she was like, oh, who are you? I'm the vice president of MTV. <laughs> and she goes, I've been leaving messages on your voicemail. <laughs> and literally, we closed the deal. We got a lot of money. We produced the whole thing, but we got the rights to, to take the technology and the platform out to other TV providers. So we took it out broadly. We got mm -hmm. M M Viacom, we got Warner Brothers, we got NBC, we got uh, Game Show Network, we got History Channel, we just like uh, Turner Networks. They're all our customers. We were doing great. We got this amazing, uh, uh, our one of our biggest competitors, which is a public company, uh, came to us with a buyout offer. Uh, all of, but our venture capitalists were like, this isn't enough money. It's not enough money. You know, we're not going to do it. And then the dot-com bubble imploded. Mm -hmm. And when the dot-com bubble imploded, every, all our customers, every media company, they literally cut their interactive spend. So anything interactive, which is what we were doing, got slashed to zero. I don't know if you remember of the time, but there was this group called NBCI, which is NBC's interactive group. Uh, they had 250 employees. They were doing, we were doing Weakest Link, their big game show at the time for them. And they basically got cut to like three employees. So they had no money to pay us. With all our money gone and all our venture funding that we had raised was run, basically we had burned through it. We were expecting to do another big round and grow yeah. our business. Nobody wanted to invest right now because we had no customers and we were out of money. And, and things were like now it was this big implosion, right? Yeah. And, and our industry was particularly hard hit. So at that time, I cut a deal with our creditors. I, we didn't go bankrupt, but I basically, uh, because they were already, our creditors were in bankruptcy. We had borrowed a bunch of money, too, to keep going. And they were had lent to a bunch of venture companies, and so they were in bankruptcy. So basically, I cut a deal where I handed off our tech, and we basically quietly shuttered, shut our mm. doors. Now, I will tell you, this was a failure, right? It was a total failure. It hit me really hard, because up until that point, I had had nothing but success. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, you know, and, and I was sure this company would be successful because we had done so well. And here I was, I had basically should have taken that buyout offer that we had earlier that would have made uh, all the founders rich and would have done incredibly well. But at the time, you, 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 you know, hindsight yeah. is twenty twenty. but I blamed myself. So I went into a depression. I felt uh, so awful and I doubted whether I should ever be an entrepreneur again. I seriously doubt it. Now you wouldn't think of that because I've done it my whole life. But at that point, I was just like, I was ready to, like, I basically, you know, I ended up moving to Canada. I ended up writing a book on game design. You know, I was just like, I wrote a lot of short stories, like science fiction. I even wrote a novel. I was just like, I don't know what to do. Like, yeah. you know, after the dot-com implosion. So I was just like, I shouldn't go back and be an entrepreneur because I blew it. But then gradually... I, under, I realized that the only thing preventing me from trying again was myself. I was basically mm -hmm. telling myself that you had failed, you weren't, uh, you shouldn't, you, you know, you had let down your employees, you had to lay them all off, you had let down everybody's dream, uh, you shouldn't uh, take, do this again because you're a failure. And at a certain point, I realized that as long as I said that, it was going to remain true. Right. I wasn't going to take a big risk. I wasn't going to do another company. I it, it, because I did. I feared having that happen again because it was so, so painful.
And that wasn't my last failure, I will tell you, uh, but it was the pivotal one because it basically taught me that, no, I can go back out there. I can do it. Failing is fine. You know, I have my successes. I have my failures. There's some things in the world you can't know ahead of time. There's some things in the world you can't control, like, you know, uh, like we're going through right now yeah. with the coronavirus and the economy. You can't control or the dot-com bubble bursting. You can't control those. And, but the one thing you can't control is your own attitude and, and your own mental script, what you say to yourself, how you, how, how you view the world. I could control that. And over time, I became more and more resilient through that failure and subsequent things. You know, because look, if you're doing a startup, anybody out there has done their, been an entrepreneur of any sort – there's always ups and downs. Even if you're working in a corporate job, like there are ups and downs, like not yeah. everything you do works out. And you're just, it doesn't matter where you are, life is full of ups and downs. And the point is, whenever I get overwhelmed now, whenever I am uh, stressed out, I look back and say, look, you went through like so many of these failures, like where things didn't work out and all your dreams were shattered and you thought you could never get over it. And now you don't even care. In fact, it makes a good story now. Like it's a fun story to tell people and you wouldn't even have that story. And I couldn't relate to like entrepreneurs who are going through trouble. If I personally hadn't, you know, totally and utterly failed and let down everybody on my team, you know, and made decisions that I would later regret. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't know what it's like to do that. And so uh, whenever things happen now that don't go right, I'm just like, oh, that's nothing. Like that could be bad, but I'll live through it. And, uh, and at, at the end of the day, if you have that attitude, you actually make better decisions because you mm -hmm. don't get stressed out. You don't get anxious. You're, you're not like there's no negative uh, feedback coming from yourself, right? And you're able to actually navigate and most of these things, like it literally, like every day, there's something that doesn't go perfectly, right? In most people's lives, you know, every, there's no perfect thing. Now, whenever something, even small thing, I'm like, will you even remember this thing that seems so important today? Like, you're like so anxious about it. Will you even remember that like five years from now? You won't. Will you even remember it a year from now? Probably not. Will you remember it six months from now? You know. No, the answer is usually no. So why are you worried? Like, why are you stressed out? It doesn't even. So how matter. do you how do you get out of your own? Because I I I've worked with entrepreneurs before, and like the biggest issue they have is getting out of their own head, and and understanding that it it's that failure is part of the process. It's it shouldn't be like failure shouldn't always be welcomed. Like you want to succeed, but I mean like it's going to take a lot of you know a lot of shit that you have to go through before you are successful, and if you are successful. So, you know, you work with tons of entrepreneurs. How do you how do you sort of enlighten them to this? Oh, so I well, some of it's storytelling and some yeah. of it is you're never out of your head. Right. So you're always trapped in your head, but you can change your your what you what your head does. <laughs> so you could literally reprogram your head like you would reprogram any any code to actually put things like I reprogram so that when I hear myself saying negative things mm -hmm. about myself or getting stressed out, usually you're getting stressed out. You're not, you're getting stressed out because you're telling yourself to be stressed out. You're saying, this is so important. I can't, oh my God, I'm so angry. I'm so upset. If you listen to what you're saying to yourself, you can hear yourself programming yourself in a negative way. You're actually yeah. telling yourself how to feel. 
so if you literally just step back and say, I don't actually have to feel this way. I could uh, feel fine about this because I know in the future, I'm not even going to care about it. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers, they filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935 and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. And I know that getting stressed out won't change the situation. It's not going to make me make a better decision. In fact, Mm -hmm. it just depletes the energy that I actually could use to actually figure out how to solve this problem or if it's unsolvable to move on to something else that I could make a difference on. So that's, that's the key I tell entrepreneurs. Is that the biggest, uh, do you find that that's like the biggest issue they have? Like a, a, an entrepreneur, like a first time entrepreneur, do you find that that mental, I don't know, hurdles that they have to get over? It's different with every entrepreneur. So some entrepreneurs are just amazingly resilient and they always are able to do this. You look at some of them, like Elon Musk is doing crazy stuff, right? And yeah. half of it doesn't work. He has rocket ships blowing up. Tesla almost went bankrupt several yeah. times, you know, and, and every day there's a new disaster or something on his production line. So 
But, you know, he just keeps going. So some people naturally have it built in. Other people like me weren't as blessed. Like we were actually programmed differently from childhood. We got we we're much more anxiety prone, let's say, mm-hmm. or much more prone to depression or not, you know, reacting in the right way. Which so many people more, are, which many people are. That's, a you know, a lot yeah, of people so I think have a ton I, of anxiety. I was, I was programmed with a lot of passion, but yeah. also, uh, you know, not as strong, not as resilient as many other people entrepreneurs are. And so I, that was my weakness. So I had to work on it. Whereas other people, you know, everybody has different weaknesses and different strengths. And uh, you just have to recognize, you know, what you're not good at and really focus. So I, mine was a conscious effort to get over that. It was a conscious effort to uh, uh, position, uh, to uh, give myself the tools necessary so that when I faced adversity, I didn't, crumble in front of it like I did the first time like when that Mm -hmm. company like it just hit me way too hard it didn't have to do that like I did that myself and I think the one thing I can say to entrepreneurs is the more you go through it the more you the more you realize that you can go through it right and so the more you put yourself out there but if you can prep yourself in advance so you don't have to suffer as much you should start doing that now you should start it on the little things and then graduate to the bigger things like those little things that make you upset or unhappy or whatever you should focus on on you know listen to what you're saying in your head listen to and that will get you not out of your head but into a different mental state where you can be more objective about what's happening oh i'm i'm making myself feel this way we're all we don't just feel like we'll have our initial reaction right of anxiety or stress that initial reaction you know, I can't control it, but maybe a Buddhist monk could. Um, but I'm not a Buddhist monk, but I can't control it. But what I can control is what comes after that initial reaction. And that is my response to the negativity. So I might feel stressed out, but then I can step back and all of a sudden uh, start to push myself back into a, a better frame of mind. Let's um let's speak a little bit more about founder space and what you're what you're working on now, if you don't mind, because yeah. um, I I love speaking entrepreneurship. So I guess, uh, you know, what does founders space uh, founders space excuse me focus on? Um, and also, uh, like what are what are your takeaways from what Silicon Valley is today? Is it, I just want to get your you know your two cents on Silicon Valley because you're 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 living it. So I am living it. So. Uh, Founder Space today focuses on helping entrepreneurs around the world, educating, training. I do a lot of public speaking. I give a lot of talks around the world. Uh, we run our own programs. We run our own incubators. So uh, basically training and helping entrepreneurs raise capital. And then we invest in some startups, not every startup we work with because we work with way too many. But uh, that is our mission. And we're really committed to that. And I believe the biggest gift we actually give in the end is not the money or not even the relationships. It's uh, the experience that we share that myself, all of the founders of Founder Space um, and all of our instructors have been entrepreneurs. And we've all failed and we've all gone through it. And we've been through it not just with our own companies, but also with many, many other companies that we've been helping. So that gives us a lot of knowledge. We can see where a company is going and we might've had a startup just like that. And we're saying, no, 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 no. We saw somebody go down that path. This is what's gonna happen. Like you you need to start uh, thinking of alternatives right mm-hmm. now, because if you just keep working on it this way, you, it's just gonna, it's a dead end for you. 
or you're going to go off a cliff <laughs> as a company. So really helping them early on to evaluate their business, to make smart decisions is the biggest thing we give them. Silicon Valley today is a very dynamic place. It's a very different place. When I started here with my first game company, when I got back from Japan, Silicon Valley, it was like the late 90s, the mid 90s, actually. It was like a long time ago. It was nothing like today. It was much more laid back. It was much less corporate. It was much, uh, you know, a little more bohemian. And it was a different world. San Francisco and Silicon Valley were a different world. Uh, today, it's a much uh, it's it's a much bigger business, right? There's mm -hmm. massive amounts of venture capital and startups, and we've gone through so many different iterations. So it's not worse or better. It's just a much larger scale and a much more systematized. And 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 venture capitalists are more knowledgeable than they ever were before. They're much better at. And when in the early days they just didn't know, right? Yeah. Now you know they didn't know about the lean startup. They didn't know about any of this. So. Uh, now, uh, venture capitalists are they, there's a playbook they go by that can be good and bad. My feeling is um, the really interesting thing is that it's not just Silicon Valley anymore. We have a lot of resources here, but if you go to Beijing or Shenzhen or Berlin or London or Seoul, Korea, all of these places, there's startups everywhere. There's incubators everywhere. There's people innovating. It's like a really exciting world. So Silicon Valley is still the biggest uh, innovation hub in the world. I work with a lot of the venture capitalists here, a lot of the entrepreneurs. You know, I wrote my books based on all my experience, you know, my Make Elephants Fly and Surviving a Startup. Uh, those books are based on that. But uh, you can get that experience all over the world now. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley. But the beauty of Silicon Valley is that when you go to China, like Beijing, they're mostly Chinese. When you go to uh, Korea, South Korea, Seoul, it's mostly mm -hmm. Korean. When you come to Silicon Valley, it's not mostly Americans. I would over half the the startup companies are founded by somebody born overseas. Mm -hmm. So foreigners found half the startup companies, and that creates a real diversity of not of 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 mindset. So you're meeting people from India, you're meeting people from Asia, you're meeting people from Europe, and they look at the world a different way when you're working at that with them, and that allows our companies who have these talent pools from all over the world to be much more creative, much more innovative because they're getting different perspectives and people are blending ideas and you, you're going to meetings and you're seeing all these different things from all over the world and they're all converging here on Silicon Valley. Everybody wants to come to Silicon Valley at one point or another. So this inflow of ideas and knowledge, it's a very exciting place. It's really... To me, it's that's why it's still the hub. It's not the hub because it produces more value because there's value being produced everywhere in Israel and all over. But it's the hub because it's where everybody in the world meets and is open and is free and is exchanging ideas. So where do you think um, I'm just curious because we're kind of living it right now. Do you think that Silicon Valley will be um, affected by coronavirus and, and the recession or do you think that it's going to come out the same way it's been it's been growing? Well, it's already been affected. I mean, startups now are, if you're a startup like in the food tech business or rest, serving restaurants. Yes, of course. Yeah, Yelp, yeah. you've laid off a thousand people from Yelp. And, you know, these companies are being dramatically affected. Will it affect Silicon Valley in the long run? 
in the next few years, it's definitely you're we're going to feel the effect. It's not this thing isn't going away tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Like these effects linger. Right. So and venture capital is already becoming more conservative. All of these things are changing. But in the long run, Silicon Valley is very resilient. We've been through the dot com bubble burst. We've been through the 2008 financial crisis. We always bounced back. The beauty of technology is there always no, new technology coming. And every time a new technology is born into the world, it creates a million new opportunities for entrepreneurs. And trust me, there's a lot of technology in the pipeline, a lot that is totally blow us away. Like in the next few years, we're going to see technologies out there that change how we use our computers, change how we use our phones, change um, even, you know, how we think and, and act in our everyday lives. So we're just that we're just. If, if what we've seen in the past with Facebook and, and, you know, Uber and all these companies and Apple and Google is amazing, uh, w wait until the next 10 years. We're going to be more amazed. Yeah, I, I, I think that and I've seen this a little bit and I sort of I, I scan the news and whatnot and it's pretty hard to avoid now. But the amount of companies that are wising up to how to incorporate new technologies, I think actually could be a benefit. Silicon Valley because people are, are a traditional industry that perhaps didn't understand or bring in the same technology as like you would in like startup land. I think they have to be a little bit more uh, inclusive of new tech. Well, look at it. Who is winning on the retail side out of on, on commerce side out of all the companies? Amazon, right? Yeah. Tech driven company because in this, even in this conditions, it can fulfill in, in the conditions of like the coronavirus, it can fill everybody's need very efficiently and amazon is further automating you know there will come a point where there'll be nobody working in their warehouses it'll yeah. be all machines i guarantee it you know you you go to the amazon store now they don't really need these amazon go stores you don't really need people in them they you know they're they're designed to be automated needing a minimal staff this is the future it's just one industry but all across the board, you know, you we're seeing industries that they this will only accelerate the pace of automation. I'll tell you that for sure, because it's a vulnerability, right? We've shown uh, it's a vulnerability. It will change the landscape. There's a lot of pluses and minuses. I'm giving talks on this now. You know, will we have a jobless society? Uh, we'll definitely have a re, uh, jobs will change. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I mean, ultimately, we will have a jobless society. I mean, uh, where we won't have to work. We may want to work because like. You and I, we love what we do. You know, we like communicating and teaching. Yeah. And there will still be people working, but it's going to be a very different world coming. And all of us will have to adapt. And technology is going to play a pivotal role in the What next. does that mean? Uh, jobless society. What does that mean um, for that people means listening? You, we, I'm not going to put a date on this. It could happen, you know, uh, it's not going to happen overnight, put it that way. So jobs are, there are always new jobs being created with new technology. Mm -hmm. There's always be a job, jobs being uh, discarded throughout, yeah. the, throughout the history of humanity, right? You know, very few people are leather workers today or cobblers. You know, you just don't walk down the, oh, you're a cobbler. You know, that used to be a big profession, <laughs> making shoes, but you, you don't see that. Um, so it's always going to change. But in, at some point, with artificial intelligence and robotics advancing at the pace they're advancing, there will come a point where literally a machine can do everything a person can do in terms of most work, most work, 
uh, a machine. You know, they even have algorithms now, AI algorithms that can compose music. And you can't tell the difference. Like, you know, they're putting this music now on Spotify and others. And you, can, you wouldn't know if it was an AI band or a real band. It sounds the same. And it's and it's and these machine learning algorithms are pretty amazing. You know, they, they can sample music and then they can actually uh, compose something very original out of in different styles that you would, you know, even experts can't tell. And painting too. these uh, AI generated paintings are like they're beautiful. <laughs> they're like gorgeous. Um, so it doesn't matter if it's a creative or if it's uh, technical or if it's manufacturing. Of course, certain jobs will go first, like you know, we autonomous cars are coming, you know, mm -hmm. that's going to you know, wipe out millions and millions of jobs. Uh, you know, uh, factories are being automated. It's still a lot of factories need people because people are very versatile. Uh, where labor is cheap, we've already seen them all move to China. Now they're leaving China and going to Southeast Asia um, because the labor is cheaper. But at a certain point, the uh, the machines will be cheaper even than the cheapest labor human can produce. And it's mm -hmm. all economics, right? It's economics in every yeah. job. And how do you, how do you we, up? Oh, go ahead, sir. I was going to ask how you upskill to, to, to sort of uh, protect against losing the job. Well, you can only protect for so long. Like right. we're, we're all going to be in the, the best, best way is, I mean, if you own the means of production, <laughs> you're protected, right? As yeah. long as you can stay on top. If you own the robots, you own the AI, you know, you're in good shape because you can deploy this, this uh, uh, superior workforce at a low cost. And, but that's going to mean a massive concentration in wealth, which is going to be a big danger for our future, uh, that, that the people with that wealth, if they don't want to share it, and, and some of them will and some of them won't be as generous, uh, what does that mean for the rest of us? So we're going to have to re-examine society, uh, you know, uh, what do people do? What do we value in society? How do we reward people? You know, even now, it's kind of an experiment. You know, a lot of people working out of their homes, should the government step in and pay, pay people not to work? You know, uh, Andrew Yang, his whole idea of universal basic income, uh, how much do we give? You know, of course, $1,000 a month isn't enough for most people to live. I don't know about you, but it's uh, but there will be a level at which it can do that. But is that the role of our government? Uh, do, will we even have a choice? That may have to be the role of our government in the future. And then, but there are plenty of things people can do. I mean, uh, people like look at yourself. Let's say we lived in a future world where you uh, didn't have to work. Would you stop doing stuff? Would you 100%, be bored? No. Well, I would. I I couldn't stop doing stuff. So that's why you know. For example, like what I'm doing now. This is not. Uh, this 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 is actually not my nine to five right now. Like I still I I still uh, work in sales and marketing for a company, um, and I manage a, a small team and we sell software and whatnot. But um, and you know we're all working from home now and and it's all great. But this is just you know maybe turns into the full time eventually. But it's not the full time right now. So exactly. And yeah. would you? Like most people I know, they have hobbies that they yeah. love. Like some of them love sailing. Some of them love stamp collecting. Some of them yeah. love, you know, what, there's a million different hot surfing. And, you know, some of them love to create content yeah. like this. Some of them love to do art. People won't be bored. Like people are like, well, if people don't have a job, they won't have meaning in their life. I totally don't believe that. Like what, how meaningful is it to flip burgers? Like it's, you know, people do that job because it pays them money and they may get some, uh, 
uh, sense of a joy out of the interaction with other people on the job. But the actual flipping of the burgers doesn't really – the only reason jobs give people meaning now or when they lose their jobs they get depressed are two reasons. One – the lack of income is depressing. Two, society tells you that if you don't have a job, you aren't providing for your family, you aren't being worthwhile. But when in a world where most people don't have jobs, right, because they simply aren't available, society will no longer say if you don't have a job, you're not worthwhile. So people will feel like, I'm not a slacker. I'm actually, you know, normal. Like, this yeah. is normal. This is the new normal. And people won't feel bad about not having a job. In fact, they will define themselves in a different way. You'll define yourself by, you know, what you do in the world. Can you make people happy? Can you entertain people? Can you, you know, are you working on the biggest collection of bottle caps in the world? You know, and is this going to be your, your legacy? But people will do this and people I, will have lots of fun. I think people will be more fulfilled, hopefully, because I think that even now, if you didn't want to work, in theory, there's so many in, in most in most Western countries, there's so many social welfare programs that you could sit on your couch all day and not work and still find a way to get money from somewhere, to be quite honest. And some people do that. But I think the vast majority of people would much maybe it's because society imposes, you know, like these these uh, ideas of what you should do. And, and, you know, you mentioned like you have to provide and whatnot. But like for, for most people, you're not going to be rich, but you don't have to work to, to live day to day. But people right. do pe- choose to work. They do it because what we value more than the job is we value people are social animals. Like mm-hmm. if you think about human beings, you know, in the hunter gatherer for, you know, tens yeah. of thousands of years, they just hunted when they needed food or gathered stuff when they needed food. But most of the time their, their value wasn't on their value was on how they relate and what they give to their community. And fundamentally, we all live in this community, this social structure, and that social structure is informing us how to feel about ourselves. And that social structure will change with time and it will free people up to do things with their time. Like right now, you're saying some most of the hardest people I know that work the hardest are like super rich, but like they, they could stop working tomorrow. Right. Yeah. It's like they aren't working for more money. They don't need more money. Like you look at any of these rich people, they work like Elon Musk. Does he need more money? No, he has no need for more money. Bill, you know, Bill Gates is working like crazy, but now he's working on his philanthropy like crazy. But he still puts in the hours. He's putting in the hours. These people work. We don't work. We work because uh, what are we going to do, right? Uh, Work creates meaning in our life. That's Mm -hmm. why we don't work for the money. So the people who think that the welfare is going to make people lazy, I just don't believe it's true. I mean, if people are going to be lazy, they'll be lazy, right? They'll be lazy on the job or off the job. If they're the type who doesn't want to do anything, then that's how they're programmed. You're not going to change them. And if they're the type who are going to, if, if, if they're the type like us who just love doing stuff, love creating stuff, love, you know, it doesn't matter. We're going to, we're going to figure out something to do with our time. Yeah. And we're going to do it. Yeah, I think my I think my my issue is I always try and figure out uh, I always try and take on too many things as as hobbies and and I have to remember that sometimes they're hobbies. If you, if you had no day job, you would I guarantee you you would be busier than ever because I'm, you'd be I, like I be, want to do this I and I want to do that and I want to do this and and I think most people uh, who want to be busy will be busy and those who just want to sit around and you know play games or watch television they they could do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. do that now. Every chance they get, they'll still do the same thing. People do what they do. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a question. Um, just uh, the first book that you wrote, Make Elephants Fly. What is that? What is the book about? 
Um, and this is not a plug. I didn't plan this at all. I just was curious about the title, um, oh. why you chose that title. The Elephant. Well, I like fun titles. Uh, so The Elephant, it's called Make Elephants Fly. The subtitle is what it's about. It's called The Process of Radical Innovation. And radical innovation is an innovation, not incremental, like not a little innovation, but a huge leap forward. So how do you get there? So the elephant for entrepreneurs, it's your big idea. It's your dream. It's like what you want to do, but it's an elephant. How elephants don't fly. How can you get this huge idea off the ground? So the book tells you how to come from an idea all the way to execution, how to take that idea and make it fly. So let's let's speak about that. Let's speak about that because let's speak about it in the context of um, I have a hobby. I'm I'm working, you know, I'm working full time, and I'm I'm using myself as an, as an example. But a lot of people have these side hustles, right? Now, yeah, even especially yeah. even more if you have more free time uh, because you're stuck at home and you don't have anywhere else to go. So people are starting. I have I've never seen so many live Instagram uh, uh, sessions, live Facebook sessions before in my life. I feel like everybody's just starting something new now. So it's good. Um, but okay. So you have an idea, you have a side hustle. How do you take that and you turn it into a flying elephant? So this is all about, uh, the process of innovating, right? Figuring out where your idea meets reality. So it's in a way, a process starting with the idea there's uh, a lot in there about ideation and how to create ideas. But once you have these ideas, how do you know which are the really good ones? Because if you're anything like me, I have a million ideas, right? A million ideas. And I think they're all great. When I first think of them, I just get excited. I'm like, oh my God, that's the best idea in the world. But you know what? Like 99%, they have a flaw. 99% are actually ideas that will not work. And most of them, maybe not 99%, but most of them are are actually terrible. So they're not great ideas. It's just in my head. So how do you go into, what is the process through which you go into the real world? You test out an idea. And also I go through this thing called the innovation loop, where you go through a, a process of discovery with each new idea. So I liken being an entrepreneur to being an explorer. Now, uh, an explorer, your job is to find something really valuable, but it's very dangerous. You're going to go into uncharted territory like the explorers that came to the Americas. You're going to meet hostile forces, whether it be nature that's going to kill you, natural things, whether it's going to be other, you know, companies or tribes that are going to come after you. Um, But what you have to do is uh, figure you don't know what's there. So when you first go there, it's all this black wilderness. And your job is to figure out your way through that wilderness as quickly as possible without getting killed, you know? So getting through that wilderness without getting killed is not an easy thing. Most startups die, over 95% from idea, from conception, all the way to, you know, being profitable or selling your company is 95% do not make that. So what are the, it goes into detail on like the pitfalls along the way where startups go wrong, what type of, what is wrong thinking? It goes into the fundamentals of business model. Like there's certain business models that are really lucrative that like make a lot of money and there are others that are doomed to failure. But on the surface, you might not even recognize which is which. I can give you an example. So there are a lot of people out there who will put up these Kickstarter projects. Mm-hmm. And the Kickstarter projects are pretty cool. Like they are like a super cool gadget. That, But what they don't realize is that that, that gadget 
that they're uh, putting out there on Kickstarter is uh, there's some problems with it. Number one, maybe the market is too niche, right? There's just not enough people out there who would buy it or that people think it's a nice to have. It's something they would like to have, but they don't really need. And even if they get enough people to like give them their initial Kickstarter target doesn't mean it's going to be a successful product because the most successful products out there are products not that you sell once to a person because as a small company, when you sell to get a new customer, let's say you make a gadget, the profit margin isn't that high. Mm-hmm. And you start off maybe with – if it's really novel, you start off with a reasonable profit margin. But as soon as people in China and other countries start copying you, that margin starts to shrink, right? It goes really, really low because they didn't – they'll just sell it for whatever they can get away with selling it for as low as possible. And and if you have to acquire new customers, which is the biggest job for any entrepreneur, like you acquire new viewers for the, your show yeah. or whatever it is, right? Acquiring new customers is expensive. And if you don't have a big profit margin, you can't afford to advertise. You definitely can't afford to call them up and do direct sales, right? Yeah. Like person to person. And you can't afford even to market on Google if the profit margin shrinks. So that will just kill your business ultimately. So you have to recognize that. Now, the companies that really succeed well, like Microsoft, Google, Salesforce, Apple, whatever they are, they, they don't sell a product once. Once you buy into them, you are continually giving them money. So whether it's on your iPhone, whether you're giving the money through the App Store over and over and over, uh, you're locked into their ecosystem, you're buying their upgraded phones, you know, over and over and over. Whether it's uh, Amazon, which you know they they may take a commission off every sale, whether they sell yeah. it or whether one of their partners sells it, they're you're giving them money every time you go back to Amazon. Whether it's Uber, you know the reason it got the big valuation was because you know once you have that Uber app, you keep using it over and over and over. So the recurring revenue, when you can get recurring revenue, that is uh, the type of business model that really scales. Facebook has the same thing. You're going onto Facebook over and over every time they're getting a few pennies from you. You know, yeah. that you view an ad, but you're going over and over and over and over. So the thing is, you know, I go into the detail in the book, like how you can get a customer and never let that customer go. Never let that customer go. And then how can you uh, make that customer as valuable to you as possible over their lifetime? I love it. Um, that's, that's very, that's very smart. That's a very good takeaway. And I think that, um, you know, it's it's funny. I've always worked in in organizations that focus on recurring revenue. My background was in telecom, and now oh, yeah. I'm in. And now, so obviously, they're very profitable. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and uh, also now I'm in SaaS or, or software, right? So it's always about recurring revenue. But I think that a lot of um, industries haven't haven't woken up to that fact, and now they're getting hit hard, especially when if they're selling physical products or they have physical storefronts or brick and mortar and yeah, like definitely. that's that's killing them if they haven't expanded and they haven't taken their their store online or expanded their products into the recurring revenue products you know like that's why people are really hurting now but that's what i think is going to fuel i i i just tweeted this out yesterday i think um this will be uh a benchmark in in the fourth industrial revolution and it will push people to look at digital in a new way and not just as that's, that's my opinion, at least I, I don't I don't know if it's going to change everyone's behavior, but I already know it's changing some people because, you know, now it's like all the people that were told, oh, you can't work from home. Well, now they're all working from home 
and they're probably working harder because they don't know when to shut off. And, you know, so like now all the people that had all these work life balance issues didn't want to commute an hour and a half. Now they're all working from home. So now what does that do to the to to, you know, all these cultures, these office cultures globally that didn't want it before? Like there's so many changes that are going to happen because of this, but also just tech and, and, and you know, uh, modernization in general. But it's very interesting. Very, very interesting. So what are you working on now? Um, so I, you know, there's a lot, you know, we can, we can probably chat for a long time. We probably, yeah, we can probably chat forever, but I have but, to eat lunch. That's I know you have to eat lunch. So let's, <laughs> so, so let's just, let's just, uh, let's just chat about like, uh, you know, what's, what's next for you? What do you want to look towards in the future? Um, with your career, you've done a lot and then we can, we can wrap up this one. We could do another one in the future. Uh, Sounds awesome. maybe. All right. Okay. So what I just finished my latest book, uh, called surviving a startup which is uh, particularly relevant right now. It's everything I've learned as surviving my own startups, mentally and physically and every other way. And that book is uh, the publisher's HarperCollins. Yeah. It isn't out yet, so it will be coming out uh, soon. I'll let everybody know. Uh, if people want more of my videos and more, you know, I'm constantly creating videos and yeah. content and a lot of it's free out there, they can go to founderspace.com. Okay. And they can get that. We also have a three-month online startup program that uh, if they like this, they'll probably love it. And it's really cheap. We sell it really cheap. But we also, if you can't afford it, if you're struggling right now because of the coronavirus, you, there's a thing on there. Just contact us, and we'll mm -hmm. give it to you free. So we want, we want everybody to be able to have this, uh, whether uh, you can pay or not. So just let and us what know. What's What's in the core? Like, what do, what do people get out of this? Like, who's who's your ideal customer for this? Oh, it's any entrepreneur, anybody okay. who wants to be an entrepreneur. And okay. basically, what it is, is every day you get uh, videos sent to you. They're short videos, uh, mostly of me. <laughs> and I am basically walking you through everything startups need to do, every, from the ground up. And the videos uh, are anywhere from five minutes to 15 minutes. So they're really bite-sized, and mm -hmm. you can watch the ones that matter to you, that are relevant to you. And you get those every day for three months. And then there's if, other material, too. If a startup um, – so maybe just one more thing, because I, I do want to – I want to focus on this just very, very briefly. A startup is looking for um, an accelerator or an incubator. So I know, like, I know Y Combinator. So what, yes. what would be the – like, what's the difference? I'm sure there's a lot of – ones that aren't as large as Y Combinator, Founder Space. I don't know the size or how many, you know, how many startups you work with. But why would a startup work with a, a Founder Space over a Y Combinator? Or is there certain categories, industries that are are more tailored to one or the other? So, Founder Space is more internationally focused. Okay. So Y Combinator tends to be more focused on Silicon Valley. They run their programs here. They're very Silicon Valley based focused. Okay. We are very global. So a lot of our entrepreneurs, about a third of them come from North America, a third come from Asia, and a third from Europe. So it's very mixed. Uh, we have They would work with us because uh, they're either coming from abroad to Silicon Valley, and our programs are kind of designed for that, mm -hmm. um, or they want to take their company and products abroad. Those are two good reasons why you'd uh, choose Founderspace. Why Combinator's excellent. There are many other 
good incubators yeah. accelerators. We have no monopoly on that. There's a lot of great ones out there. And some go through multiples. Like we've had our startups, they also join Y Combinator. You know, people go back and forth. They try more than one incubator program yeah. uh, or accelerator program. We're very focused on education. Uh, we are uh, also, um, you know, some of it's personality, like who you connect with, who you yeah, like. That's true. That's and then important. some of it's opportunity because not everybody gets into like a Y Combinator's uh, actually quite hard to get into, uh, very difficult. Uh, we have different programs at different levels, not just one. So some of our programs are very competitive, but others are more open. And mm -hmm. to, and like we put on the online program and things like that that are open to everybody. Yeah. So uh, if I'm an entrepreneur, I tell you, try as many things as possible and, and test them out. See what works for you um, and and see what what you know, a timing too, right? Yeah. If you get accepted program at a specific time when you're coming to Silicon Valley, that can make all the difference. I think the personality one is the one, uh, all the points you just listed were good, but the personality one is very important um, because I think the, the biggest issue entrepreneurs may have, hopefully not, but I think a lot of them just see money or they see support and they latch on and it could be not the right money or not the right support. And that could be very detrimental down the road if you don't like align with the right people from the from the get go. So yeah, getting uh, with good people. Now, I don't think you can go wrong with like a Y Combinator. They have very no, smart no, no, people. not not Y Combinator. I mean, but uh, there are the, some others yeah. where it might you know they might not offer as much value. Yeah, for um, sure. And and it's good to ask people been through the program too. I always tell people, you know, ask people who've already been through the program if you get accepted before you decide whether it's a really good program. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, and then last uh, last sort of question, just to tee up some of your experience. Um, I like asking these questions. Uh, one piece of advice that you would tell your younger self that would help you get to where you are a little bit quicker? I would tell my younger self, take even more chances. Be even crazier than you already were because you can never <laughs> be too crazy. You can never have too much and, and really enjoy it. Enjoy every minute of it. Even the failures and the things that go wrong. I love it. Um, and also, where do you go to to learn? Uh, books, podcasts, uh, audibles, mentors, any good uh, references? Yeah. So I read tons of books. I'm an author, but uh, even before that, I read. Um, so I read at least one new book a week, at least. So I am uh, just an avid consumer. I love podcasts. I love news. I'm just always – I love information. I'm always sucking up information. So I'm reading like you know, New York Times, Washington Post, and every other you – know, you know, I'm flipping through yeah. them really quickly. But I, I, I pay to subscribe because I want you know, people to do investigative journalism and good news. So I do that. I also listen to lots of podcasts. I like those. I – I spend a lot of time on audiobooks now. Yeah. So I do a lot of audiobooks and I've gotten to the point where I can listen at double speed. So <laughs> especially if it's informational, I can, you know, it's no problem for me. So I'll be I'll even when I'm exercising. So I'm yeah. a very busy person. So all like if I'm in the car, if I'm in a plane, if I'm out jogging or walking or doing any sort of exercise, I will be listening to an audiobook at double speed. Do you have, um, for entrepreneurs in particular, because that's obviously uh, like the target that we're, we're speaking about now, um, obviously make elephants fly, uh, surviving a startup when it comes out, but do you have like other recommendations for like a title that people should consume that you just oh, loved? I love so many books, so it's, it's hard, but I will tell you. Uh, there's one about Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, called Shoe Dog, great mm -hmm. entrepreneurial story, love that one. 
There's another one uh, about this FBI agent who, who negotiates with terrorists yeah. and tells you how to negotiate called Never Split the Difference. Yeah. Really good yeah. book. I'm reading a really good one now called Influencer. Uh, that is all about uh, – uh, no, it's, I think it's called The Power of Influence Okay. Uh, because it's an audiobook. I, I, You know, you don't look at the title every day. No, 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 no. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really fascinating, and it's about sales, about what you do. So it's like yeah. total, all these techniques. Um, so there are so many amazing books. But one thing I do encourage people to do is don't just read business books or entrepreneurial books. Those are good. You know, you can read my books, but but read a diversity of books. So I, because it opens your mind in a different way. It makes you much more creative. So I read like great novels, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, anthropological work, uh, work on history. I read books about science and physics and all of these give me ideas that I never would have had if I had just been too narrow. Like mm-hmm. a lot of my best ideas and also allows me to interact and relate to people in science because like I read a lot of books about like cutting edge science or new technologies. Uh, it, it's it totally broadens where I think the world is going. So um, I encourage you like be as diverse as possible. Read books on sociology and psychology. There's just amazing, amazing, amazing books out there that you might not even think you're interested in, but just go Google them. What's the best book on psychology? What's the Mm -hmm. best book on sociology? What's the best book on whatever subject you don't know a lot about? And you will probably, if it's the best book, you're going to not only learn something, you'll probably love it. I love it. Okay, good. Um, How do people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Okay, you can go to founderspace.com. That's the best okay. way. Founderspace.com. Contact us. You can also email us at vc at founderspace.com. That's all for today. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of the Success Story Podcast. You can download or stream this podcast wherever podcasts are available, including iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many others. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, and peers. Please leave us a rating on iTunes. It takes about 30 seconds as it allows other people to find our podcast and lets our amazing guests reach even more people with their message. And remember, any rating is fine as long as it contains five stars. I'm Scott Clary from the Success Story Podcast, signing off. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. 
efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn Jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn Jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. 
This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 